Great God, we love you. Thank you for this opportunity to worship with your people. Thank you for the privilege of coming under the banner of your word. Praise you for the eternal grace for those of us who have celebrated communion and in the opportunity to commemorate Christ's body broken and blood spilled, to come under his love and his righteousness and his forgiveness, for that is our only hope. Lord, today, through all these things, meet us and do your work. As we come to your word, would you help our love to grow in knowledge and discernment? Would you help us to test and to prove what is of eternal value? Would you make us sincere in holiness? And would you fill us by your word, Holy Spirit, today with the fruit of Christ's righteousness to the praise of the glory of your grace? And all God's people said, Amen. Dennis Johnson gives us just a bit of background uh, on the community of Philippi, which is uh, peculiarly helpful for the passage we come to today at the end of Philippians chapter 1. Philippi was in Macedonia in the Eastern Roman Empire. The Philippians were a people who had great civic pride. Why was that? Because their city was a Roman colony, and as Dennis Johnson tells us, they had received a special honor from Octavian, he would later be called Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony, who sometime before the writing of this letter of Philippians, they, they conferred upon Philippi a special status so that all of its citizens were immediately made Roman citizens. Rome did not automatically confer citizenship upon everyone that was born within its territories. And so this was a big deal. Everybody in the territories owned by Rome were essentially then second-class citizens. They didn't have the same rights. They definitely didn't have the same position or privilege or opportunity. And the citizens of Philippi knew this well and knew it with, with great pride. Citizenship was typically a privilege reserved for a city's leading families. If you were a peculiar nobility or means, or if you had done something that the empire deemed as making you worthy. In general, the Roman Republic, as it expanded and became an empire, would extend citizenship status through current citizens sponsoring another family or person to become citizens. Most subjects living under Rome's dominion around the Mediterranean region found that the rights and responsibilities and opportunities of citizenship were just simply out of their reach. In addition, Philippi further cultivated its Roman identity through its architecture, through its language. They spoke, they spoke Latin. They used Roman architecture rather than Greek to identify themselves in such a way as to appease the Roman authorities. Politically, Philippi had a special loyalty towards Rome and its emperors. It had a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus and his empress Livia. You know, so you can worship the president and his wife, right? At a shrine to the divine Claudius, Roman ruler. Now, Philippi practiced paganism in all sorts of different forms, but it had a special place for the Roman deities and its worship. Would you be surprised then to find, or maybe to be reminded if you 
happen to know already, that when the gospel first came into the Philippian region, do you remember what the people said about the coming of the gospel? Do you remember what the people complained, bringing it to the governmental authorities so that they would act and act quickly, act irrevocably so that Paul and Silas and his missionary team would be, be quickly squashed? Here's what they said, and you can read it in Acts 16, 21. They said that these people come here advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. How do you like that for a complaint? You know, the problem with these people is they're rabble-rousers. And if we do what they say, they're making us bad Romans. What they were doing by such a statement is they were saying that to follow this Crestus, this Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, was anti-Roman. It was unpatriotic. That was the claim. As it was for those Christians in Philippi, as it was for Paul, and as it has been in any number of generations and places down through the ages, right? There in Philippi in Acts 16, a mob gathered, a riot ensued, and the magistrates ordered Paul and Silas to be beaten and imprisoned, and the problem was essentially dealt with. Well, they had to go back later and apologize and let them out, but they dealt with it, didn't they? This is the society, society wherein Paul has left these Christians in Philippi, and Paul himself is summer, suffering in uh, a similar culture, but just in a different city as he himself finds himself in prison for the gospel. This is the generation that the Spirit of God has ordained for these Philippians to grow up in and to live faithfully in and to love and serve and witness. You think maybe we could learn a couple of things from them this morning? I think we can. Join me as we read Philippians chapter 1, the closing four verses of chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Paul, after speaking to them about what he is enduring and how God is using all of this oppression, all of this persecution for the glory of Christ and for the furtherance of the gospel, now turns his attention specifically to these Philippians. And he gives them an overarching command which will guide the next chapter or so. Philippians 1.27 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent... I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Pause there. One single command in these entire four verses that control the thought of the whole thing. Live as gospel-worthy citizens. I'm going to explain to you why I've uh, uh, expressed it that way. But one command, everything else is subservient to that and basically fetters out what that means, what it's going to look like, and why we should be motivated for that, though it's going to be hard. Our message this morning, Lord willing, will probably start slow and end quickly. So uh, hang with me, and Lord, we'll put all together. First, I just want you to notice his opening word there, only. This is not only emphatic um, by its meaning, but also by its position here in the sentence. 
Paul is saying here, whatever happens, do this. Above all, this. Only this, he says. His command, which will drive a good portion of this letter, is above all other things, just live as gospel-worthy people. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is the way it's translated here in the NAS. There are, as far as I could find, three other places just in Paul's writings where he tells us to live worthy or to walk worthy. Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 1 Thessalonians 2, live worthy of the God who calls you. Colossians chapter 1, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord. I just want to mention that the idea worthy is one that I wrestled with and I wanted to nuance, but I just can't come up with a better one. But I'll give you my struggle with it. When I'm told to do something worthily, I'm immediately faced with the problem of performance, right? And the reality is I know as a follower of Christ, I'm going to fall short. I'm going to fall short often, and I'm going to sometimes fall short bad. And so if somebody hangs a banner over my life, live worthy of God. Live worthy of your calling. Live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the Lord. I'm like, but I just can't. First good news is that's exactly right. You can't. It's impossible in and of your own. Only the Lord can do it through you. Secondly, though, the encouragement is because we have been transformed by the gospel, fellow believers, we now have the ability to live out of that life, out of that truth, out of that grace, rather than anything else. So that's what Paul is calling them to. Live above anything else beyond your race, beyond your political tribe, beyond your station in life, beyond your background and your circumstances and whatever hurts or hardships or difficulties you faced. Above anything else, let your identity be gospel people. Live worthy, live commensurate, live, live comparable lives to those who are gospel people. Now, I've thrown in another word here, live as gospel-worthy citizens. Why citizens? Because those three other places in Paul's writing where he tells us to live worthy or walk worthy, he uses a different Greek word. He uses a word here that this is the only time that it's used, actually, in Scripture. It doesn't mean it was super rare. It just means it's the only time that Paul used it. I find it noteworthy that it's different than the three other times he says to walk worthy. The, the, the word is, uh, I believe it's polituomai. Uh, I might have that a little wrong, but that little portion of the word is where we get the word politics or a metropolis. It's a city. In other words, it has the idea of what? Citizen. So what do you think Paul is doing to these Christians in Philippi? Y'all are proud, aren't you? You're proud Philippians. That's the water you swim in. That, that's, the, that's the world you were born into. Man, I'm a Philippian, man. I am a Roman citizen. I have rights and standing and position and privilege. And he says, you're citizen of another kingdom. And it surpasses any other calling or privilege you'll ever know. Walk worthy. But here he doesn't say walk exactly. He says live like gospel citizens. Live citizeny. It just doesn't translate easy in English. But the idea is live citizeny as citizens of gospel kingdom. 
So since I didn't want to say that phrase 30 times this morning, I just called it gospel-worthy citizens. But that's the point for us. It surpasses any other calling or hardship, any other definition of our lives. We are to be gospel-worthy citizens. So we're going to dive in and talk about what that looks like and how to do it a bit, but I just need to do one other thing before we do that. And I want to define a little bit, as I think the whole letter of Philippians will define, well, what does it mean to be a gospel-worthy citizen? We're going, to sh- we're going to see this morning some of the fruits of it. We're going to see some of the motivations to it. But he doesn't pause here to define, well, what does it mean to be a gospel-worthy citizen? And I think that's okay. Because just having that thought and that goal, just having that desire is probably enough for um, my conscience and the Holy Spirit helping me uh, mostly to figure out what I need to do. If I'll just stop, desire, pray, and ask, then he'll show me. What would a gospel-worthy citizen do in this situation, Lord? But just for our working definition, let me give you a couple of thoughts. To live as gospel-worthy citizens means to live with humility but also with courage. As Paul has exampled both of those, and he is about to command both of those. In fact, in today's passage, he'll command courage. The beginning of chapter 2 will be one of the uh, most legendary passages in all of Scripture on humility. A gospel-worthy citizen lives with humility and also with courage. A gospel-worthy citizen speaks with grace and also speaks the truth gospel-worthy citizen speaks with grace and also speaks the truth. We can take that from the model of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came forth from the Father, full of grace and truth. Easy for him. We think of it as opposite ends of a spectrum, but for him, they were the same thing. Everything I do is grace, and everything I do is truth, Jesus could say, all at one and the same time. To live as a gospel-worthy citizen means to readily admit our own great need and also to affirm God's great supply. That's what it means to be a gospel citizen, to live worthily as a gospel citizen. It's not a a worthy religious citizen. It's it's not a worthy self-righteous citizen. It's a gospel citizen. Readily admit our own great need and affirm God's great supply. Well, That's it. We're done. I mean, that's the whole message for the day. You get it. You can go now if you want. But if you're interested to find out what are some of the motivations for that and some are some of the results of what that would look like, then you can stay. What do we find in our passage first? Then gospel-worthy citizens can stand firm. Gospel-worthy citizens can stand firm. 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel Christ gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul doesn't know if he'll die in prison or he'll get out. He doesn't know if he get, does get out, how, how long it'll be before he gets out. He doesn't know if he'll ever visit the Philippians again in person, but he says, look, doesn't matter if I come and see you face to face, treat it as though I was right there. The apostle sent to bring you the gospel, which has been your salvation. Act as though I was right there and know that what I would long to hear of you, what I would long to see in you, is that you stand firm in one spirit. The word here for stand firm is a military term. It's often used in the context of a soldier. It has the idea to not budge one inch. 
The world around you will redefine reality. Don't move. The world around you will attack from this side and then the other. Say that you're too harsh and then too weak, too pathetic and too intolerant. Don't move. Don't budge off the line, soldier, is what Paul is saying here. There's a, there's a reason why we um, have as a great benefit the, the creeds and the catechisms of the faith because they help us see down through the ages how the community of God's people have sought to, to indoctrinate their children and new disciples in the truths. At the end of the day, it's, it's the gospel in seed form and all of Scripture as a river that, that is our solid place to stand on. These are tools where we see where the people of God have sought. How are we going to pass this on from generation to generation? How are we going to practice it together? Some people don't like doctrine. They say that doctrine divides. I suppose there's a truth to that, but there's also a truth, and I think a greater one, to say that doctrine unites. Because truth is the last thing we can stand on. And it helps me decide the myriad of things not to divide over if I know what I can agreeably stand with my brothers and sisters on. Let me tell you something that will be absolutely disbelieved and laughed at in the world. But it is true, not only in these four walls, but everywhere in our society, because God says this is this way. If there is any hope in the world, if there is any hope in our culture, it will be because the people of God will not budge off of grace and truth. It will be because God's people will, will retain the standard of sound words which have been handed down to you, Paul says to Timothy, because they contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It will be because the people of God will persist in humility and courage because they know no other hope and they refuse to fight for or die for lesser hopes. If the world is to have any hope, it will be because the church doesn't budge. That's a pretty tall order for us, isn't it? It was the only hope in the first century for the people of Philippi, for the Christians, to stand firm. It has always been that way, and it's going to be that way today. In October, the Essendon Bombers Football Club, and when I say football club, you need to translate that into American and say soccer, um, but everywhere else in the world. The Essendon Bombers Football Club uh, of Melbourne, Australia, in October they hired Andrew Thorburn as their new CEO. The leadership of Essendon Football Club was very excited about this hire. Uh, Whatever amount of publicity or knowledge that had preceded this was met very positively. I understand that Andrew Thorburn had a rather solid track record as a leader, and the club was excited about the future with him at the helm in this role. Andrew Thorburn served as CEO for one day. When the news of his hiring was announced within hours, the media and community leader, leaders began to call for his firing. 
You see, it was reported that he was the member of a conservative evangelical church there in Melbourne. And that was found to be unacceptable. With the firestorm, try as he may, he could do no other. So the next day, Andrew Thorburn stepped down. Part of what he said in response. This is October of 2022. Today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square, at least by some and perhaps by many. Despite my own leadership record, the community has spoken. They made it clear that my Christian faith and my association with the church are unacceptable in our culture if you wish to hold to a leadership position in society. Now, the rest of the story, or at least some of the rest of it, is that in December, Essendon Football Club actually returned and issued an apology to Andrew Thorburn. They didn't rehire him, but a joint statement was issued by Thorburn and the club's leadership together along with the apology, saying that the situation had been handled and that they had resolved the matter. That's all I know of as of today. In this case, there might have been some capitulation come round by the Essendon Football Club, but for his part, so far as I know, and I don't know the man any other than this and a couple other snippets, so far as I know, Mr. Thorburn seemed to be a man of humility and a man of courage, a man whose faith was genuine. And that faith ran up against what the society of his day deemed to be acceptable, and yet he stood. I'm sure his story is far from over. Gospel-worthy citizens, though, can stand firm. Second, we find in our passage this morning, gospel-worthy citizens build upon unity to fortify their help and resolve. Gospel-worthy citizens build upon unity to fortify their help and their own resolve. Again, 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Did you see the three phrases that are there that speak of unity? Paul here never commands the believers in Philippi to be unified. But it's so obvious that that unity is the DNA of everything else that they do that it's so necessary for their fortification in order to be able to stand firm. Notice there near the end of verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, unity, with one mind or thought. And then the Greek word that's translated here, it's a compound word, but it's translated striving together. Three times, back to back to back, he speaks of the unity that is found in worthy gospel citizens. Because there are, there are people who, be they even of different races and nationalities, be they even of different standings in society, be they even of different experiences or background, even if they root for opposite sports teams, they have a unity together because their unity is in their highest priority as gospel citizens. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're to be and to seek. When believers are at odds with one another, they are easy prey for an enemy who is seeking to devour, aren't they? 
When I am at odds with another believer, I am weak and vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. But when I'm working together with brothers and sisters to understand, to reconcile, to love, to listen, to confess, to forgive, when I'm working hard at that, the enemy doesn't have a foothold. Where do you find fellowship week in and week out with other believers? Where do you get to speak freely of your challenges in walking with Christ week in and week out? Where do you get to bow and pray for another brother or sister over the challenges of them trying to walk faithfully and get to invite them to pray for you? This is what I'm facing this week. Lord willing, hopefully you do that in your homes, in your families, and in your marriages. Lord willing, hopefully you do that in small groups in Sunday school classes and in other gatherings with believers for that exact purpose, whether it's over coffee in a restaurant or a Saturday evening community group. Gospel-worthy citizens build upon unity to fortify their help and their resolve. If we're going to be found faithful in Christ a decade from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, unless we die first or Christ returns, it will not happen unless... We build upon unity because it was designed to work that way. Third, gospel-worthy citizens contend above all things for the gospel. Gospel-worthy citizens contend, fight, strive, contend above all things for the gospel. And you're saying, Frank, you're repeating yourself. Yes, I am. I'm just showing you where it is right here in the passage. One place already, it's in the first word of 27 only, but it's there again at the end of 27 standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word here, striving together, has the idea of side by side. I like that. Linking arms, having somebody hold you up, walk forward with you in lockstep. This is scary, brother, but we're going to do it. Not sending you ahead alone, but saying, let me, let me walk with you in prayer every step. Let me, let me come alongside you. Every victory and every seeming defeat, let me walk with you. Why? Because what are we doing? We're doing all that we're doing for the sake of the gospel. We might share the gospel one-on-one, -on -one, but, but it takes a community, I think, to show gospel fullness. Nine Marks has written some great resources about this when it comes to um, evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel. They have, a, they have a very robust understanding, and I've benefited from it in seeing that, that when we come together as a community of believers, there's a fully orbed outworking of the reality of the gospel that now influences people that is so much more than just a one-on-one. -on -one. Now, in most cases, that's where we have to start. In most cases, it's a, a co-worker. Uh, it's a family member. It's somebody that you're speaking to about Christ. But get them to join a small group or to come to a church fellowship or, heaven forbid, show up on a Sunday morning. And they'll get the opportunity to see how are relationships among gospel citizens different. What do they talk about? What do they get excited about? Are they jousting with each other constantly in one-upsmanship? Or are they seeking 
to draw one another out and love and encourage them. How are you doing this week? How's that going? Man, I've been praying for this for you. Man, that just that is an aroma of Christ that's beautiful, right? And God has designed it to work that way. And so we gather together to contend above all things for the gospel. There's the community part. Let's consider the above all things part. We're commanded to contend for the faith. Uh, Jude writes a whole book of the Bible about it. Granted, it's probably one of the smallest books of the Bible, but still, the whole letter of Jude is basically built on that idea. Contend for the faith. That's not written to the pastor, the elders. That's written to every member of the church that they contend. Hear me out as I say this. We are not called primarily to contend for political change. That's not our primary calling. We are not called primarily to contend for homeschool freedoms. We are not called primarily to contend for appropriate curricula in the school system. Are those fights worth fighting? Absolutely. But they're not our primary calling, are they? Our primary calling is to contend for the faith of the gospel, Paul writes here at the end of verse 27. And all that we do in doing those things has eternal value to the degree to which those things are an effort to contend for the gospel. But we don't want to lose sight of the main thing, right? And we need help. We need encouragement in all of those battles and in so many, many others. I just throw out three that I think probably uh, offend every person in the room, at least once, just to be fair. If we see progress in any area, in society, in culture, in an individual, in a decision, in a ruling, if we see any progress, may it, by the grace of God, adorn the gospel in the way that we go about it. May it, may it make the, the goodness of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ look beautiful. I'm stealing a phrase from Titus 2, adorning the gospel, but the idea is throughout the letters of the New Testament. If, if we are slandered, in the midst of our fights, in the midst of contending, then may we in return speak the gospel. And if we are cut, then may we bleed the gospel. If we are hurt, may we in our brokenness pour out the gospel. Contend above all things for the gospel. And as we converse with a hurting world, may we regularly herald the gospel. Man, I'm a terribly broken person. Man, we say, you're right. This world is terribly broken and it's ugly and it's mean and it's hard and it's strife-filled. <laughs> I guess depravity is the most provable doctrine in all of Scripture, isn't it? It's a good thing the Lord came to give us a Savior. These are the kind of conversations we can have pretty much every day, right? Because somebody's complaining about something broken in the world. Gospel-worthy citizens contend above all things for the gospel. Next, and this is really finally the last main point in the passage, and then everything else will fall under it. Gospel-worthy citizens 
are not shaken by gospel opponents. Gospel-worthy citizens are not shaken by gospel opponents. Paul gives one command, be gospel-worthy citizens. And then he says, if you do it, here will be the result. I will hear that you stand firm. And then he gives two descriptions of what standing firm will look like. 27, I will hear of you, middle of 27, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Here's his two descriptions. First, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And second, in no way alarmed by your opponents. I'm not giving you all the grammar details. I'm just saying, if you're willing to trust me, that's the way the Greek is written. One command with one result that shows itself in two ways. And what are the two ways we stand firm? One, in all that we do, we contend for the gospel above all. Number two, we're not shaken. We're not alarmed. We're not startled, even though there are gospel opponents. The word alarm here is, um, again, one that I believe is unique in the Greek New Testament. I think it's the only time used here in the New Testament. But outside of Scripture, the word here for alarm is, uh, is used in the context of a herd of horses that gets startled. They get spooked, and what do they do? They stampede. They flee in panic. I love that picture. Isn't that a great picture? You know what Paul says we do? Man, we got reasons to be concerned. Man, there are even things that may generate genuine fear, but we don't panic. Gospel-worthy citizens are not shaken by gospel opponents. We may be dishonored, but it doesn't mean we have to hide. We may suffer, but if we know Christ, we'll never be ashamed. There are gospel opponents in every walk of life, in every level of administration, in every facet of society. And some have openly said that it is their goal to stamp out intolerant Christians. Some, not all, but some have made that a goal. So we shouldn't be surprised. That's my only point this morning. It's not to stir us up to hate the world and go out to fight against it. No. It's to go contend for the gospel so that the Lord himself can be glorified as he transforms lives by drawing people to himself just as he's done with us. But when there are bona fide opponents and they do what is genuinely unjust, unfair, and evil, we're not surprised. We are not shaken. Do you remember back about uh, three months to the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church? I remember uh, Ravi, our brother that um, we partner with, with uh, Genesis of Hope and uh, a couple other ministries there in India, telling us about a couple friends of his. And I recounted the story about Amud and Yusuf. Amud was an imam, and Yusuf was a convert from Islam and a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amud despised Yusuf. Amud took every opportunity he could and taunted Yusef. 
He even organized harassment against Yusuf, genuine suffering and loss. He knew he wasn't safe anytime he left his home as to what he might meet. But Amud, by his own admission, never had peace. And he said, there's one thing I knew as I was studying that all that Allah and Islam had to offer me, it did not bring peace. How could I, with a clear conscience, minister to others something that I knew was empty and void and fruitless? But in Yusuf, he saw peace. Yusuf never retaliated. Yusuf never budged. Yusuf never formed a mob in, you know, uh, in attack against Amud. But he spoke the truth. He stood firm. He proclaimed the gospel and he heralded the grace of Christ until finally one day God broke Amud and Yusuf led him to Christ. Today, Amud and Yusuf are both in training with Ravi and his ministry to raise them up as gospel ministers. Gospel worthy citizens are not shaken by gospel opponents. Praise God. Proverbs 28.1, you may jot down, you can look it up later, but it is such a blessing and an encouragement, such an exhortation for us to pursue this rightly because it's easy to do wrongly. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Why? Because God is their protector. They're not righteous in their power. They hide in the shadow of his wings. And so ultimately they have nothing to fear. But the wicked don't know the day the judgment will come, the day that they'll be found out, the day they'll be exposed. But the righteous says, I'm already exposed. <laughs> I'm already a fake. I'm already weak and needy and pathetic. But my hope ain't in me. I'm a gospel citizen. A life built upon the gospel day in and day out will be fortified in supernatural ways. Well then, let's, let's quickly, quickly close this morning. And you say, well, you're not even halfway through the passage. Well, the main points of the passage have already been covered. What we find now are five reasons from this point on. It's here when he says, um, can I rehearse it for you? Um, be gospel-worthy citizens. If you do, the result is you'll stand firm in two things. You'll contend and you won't be alarmed. But then he seizes on this not being alarmed. And what he's going to give now are five ways that the unshaken gospel life is powerful. First, let's read it. 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. First reason that the unshakable gospel life, the unshaken gospel life is powerful is first because it is a warning to the lost. That's what he says in verse 28. He says, when your opponents see you not cowering in fear, it is a sign to them of their eternal destruction. What did Amud see in Yusuf? 
right? He saw something. Did Yusuf ever cry? He may well have. Did he ever recoil? Did he ever run? He may have. I'm not saying you have to stick your chin out and, you know, pretend it doesn't hurt. I'm just saying if you're a gospel citizen, the Lord will catch you. The Lord will carry you. The Lord will hold you. And, and such divine strength, such supernatural fortification that doesn't come from you is something that God can use for others to see him. And it's a warning to them. Yusuf has something I don't have. He has a peace I've never known. And beat him and taunt him and harass him as I may, I can't beat it out of him. I think I want what he has. The unshaken gospel life is powerful to warn the lost. Number two, the unshaken gospel life is powerful as a confirmation to us when we're attacked. That kind of a life is a confirmation to us when we're attacked. He says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. The fact that you find when offended, when insulted, when wronged, that you have the audacity, rather than defend yourself, to run back to the gospel for hope. You'll realize, holy cow, that's not from me. Oh my goodness, look at what God is making of me. This hurts, but I actually genuinely love God and His glory and the gospel more than I do winning this situation. And it'll be a confirmation to you of your salvation. I think I might be going to heaven because I don't think I could do this by myself. Third, it's confirmation that God is at work, which is exactly the point, right? Confirmation that God is at work. In no way alarmed by your opponents, 28, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. This is that place in our heart and in our spirit where God actually meets us. I hope nobody walks away with a performance mindset. I don't think you can get that from today's passage, can you? I hope not. Instead, you walk away with a, a, a joyful wooing. Lord, I want that. Lord, it hurts, but I want that. So I want to run to you, and I want to hide in the gospel. And, and, and Lord, you rebuke your adversaries. You convict. You give the gift of repentance that brings them to faith and hope. And Lord, in me, all I know is there is something happening here that is so obvious it's God. And I just want more of that, we say. The unshaken gospel life is powerful because it's confirmation that God's at work forth. It's powerful because... It is a privileged grace from God. Uh, what, what, what specifically? There are two things that Paul says, if you live this way and you suffer for it, you're doubly blessed. It's a double privilege, 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is a great word here, granted. Uh, it's built on the word charis. Anybody know what the Greek, Greek word charis means? It means grace. God has graced you to believe. Salvation is totally a gift. Thank you, Lord, you've opened my eyes. I saw the beauty of Christ. I saw the depravity and sickness of myself, and I could do no other but embrace him. Thank you, Lord God. Total gift, total grace. That's the first one. What's the second one? 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Tell me, in eternity, will you be ashamed to have suffered for Christ? Are you kidding me? You're going to be the biggest braggart in heaven, right? You're going to want everybody to know, you know how God let me suffer for him? Let me tell you this story. I love this story. Now tell the angels to go away. I know they've heard it. I, you want, I want to tell you. I don't know that heaven exactly allows that kind of pride, but you get the point. When, when our perspective is eternal, suffering for Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. It's everything to rejoice in because God uses it for eternal purposes. And that's a glorious thing. God's sovereignty once again continues to be a foundation of this entire passage. It continues to be a theme of this entire letter. Paul here is proclaiming that God is in control when you suffer wrongly, when you suffer unjustly, when you suffer for righteousness' sake. He says, that is so God's perfect will. What a gift. Now, be careful how you encourage your friends who are suffering this week, right? Don't be Job's friends. But after we've sat and listened and cried for a while, we can say, you know what? You really do have hope, don't you? Man, this was wrong. Man, this hurts. Man, this is hard. But, I, but you think maybe God's doing something in this? You think maybe this is actually a gift of His grace, both for your sanctification and maybe even for the salvation of others, all to His glory. You think maybe He's doing something here? You see, that's the indomitable hope of a Christian. That's the indomitable hope of a gospel-worthy citizen. It's not punishment. It's not defeat. It's a sign of God's favor. Lastly, the unshakable gospel life is powerful because it brings us into common fellowship shared by other believers. Because it brings us deeper into common fellowship shared by other believers. That's what Paul gives here in verse 30. You are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You understand why he says it that way, right? Because when he was there in Philippi some years before, they saw it when he and Silas got beaten, grabbed, thrown in prison. And now they know he's in prison somewhere else, and so they're hearing of it. And we know that one of their great concerns at this point is their great hero, Paul, the one who taught them. How is he faring? And, and, and maybe we were mistaken to follow him, and he's saying no. No, not only should you follow me, you're going to get to be just like me. Because the same conflict is happening in your world. Once more in the book of Philippians, we have a sharing. I told you about the word koinonia, which is usually translated sharing or fellowship. It's a key word in the book of Philippians. The word is not used in verse 30, but the idea absolutely is. We are sharers together in grace. We are sharers together in the gospel. Uh, sharers together, I can't quote them all right now. There are several. Here, sharers together in suffering. You are experiencing the same conflict you saw in me. I think that's a great encouragement for those Philippians. When you are wrongly attacked, when you suffer unjustly, when you are insulted in an appropriate way, for righteousness' sake, 
you know what's cool? You'd be a little bit more like Yusuf, aren't you? Or, or, or pick your favorite current hero of the faith who has walked faithfully. Pick your favorite ancient hero of the faith. Pick your favorite biblical hero of the faith. Or pick the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he makes you more like him. And you now know, as Paul will write in chapter 3, the fellowship of his sufferings, to know him in his death and in his resurrection. And that's priceless. That's why the unshaken gospel life is powerful. Live as gospel-worthy citizens because that's the only life that will not crumble. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. If we may, this morning as we pray, if you uh, will indulge me and and choose to go along, um, as we pray, would you be willing to uh, uh, stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all? Because we sang that a bit ago. You guys want to pray like that with me? You don't have to, you don't want to, but that's what I'm going to do. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our God, you are king over all the universe. You are Lord and master and savior of our lives. You are father and friend and healer and hope. Holy Spirit, you are comforter. We come to you with our hands up and exposed and our hearts abandoned and we want to stand in awe of you, Lord God. We want to be gospel-worthy citizens. We proclaim you our king over our lives today and this week. Help us be reminded of it. Help us this week be used for the redemption of souls for the proclamation and heralding of the gospel, for the glory of the name of Christ. We can't do it, but Lord our God, you do it well. We love you. We thank you for it. All to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.